1: Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Adele Holmes about her debut novel, Winter's Reckoning. As others have noted, racial prejudice in the United States has been woven into the country's history since its foundation. But like attitudes that relegate women to secondary status or ignore alternative forms of sexual identification, the tendency to express and act on racial prejudice varies over time. One factor in that variation is personality, specifically the need of one or more individuals to pump themselves up by putting others down. That way of dealing with internal discomfort forms the heart of Adele Holmes' new book, which opens in the Appalachian Mountains in the fall of 1917. Her ancestors were healers, mysterious, wise, noble. They championed their ideals and frequently stood accused for them. Some were legends. She doubted such people still existed in 1917. Madeline Fairbanks wished for a smidgen of her forebear's grit as she filled her medical bag. A man had been dispatched to retrieve her. His report was harrowing, an incident unheard of in their sleepy rural community. They need you right now, Maddie. The bald man pranced in place as though he stood on hot coals. Gunshot injuries in town, I don't know who done it. Gunshot? How many are injured? Anyone dead? Bloody mess, for sure. Can't say if anybody's dead. He rubbed the peach fuzz on his shiny scalp. minute I pulled up, everybody yelled to go get you. Her mind spun as she prepared herself for the task ahead. The bumpy wagon ride seemed interminable. But when she was delivered to the scene, the butterflies in her stomach flew away, and she fought to suppress her giggles. And now, please join me in welcoming Adele Holmes. Hi, Dell. I look forward to talking with you today.
0: Well, thank you, Carol. I'm very happy to be here.
1: This is your first novel, so before we discuss it, please tell us a bit about your past and how you came to write fiction.
0: Yes, well, um, I enjoyed a full career as a pediatrician, though I did retire early in my 50s. I, I was a pediatrician for a whole lifetime before. I love that profession. I love being a doctor, but I've also been an avid reader for most of my life, and I've written, though only for myself, throughout my life as well. So, having had a successful career, you know, I felt a tug toward significance in some other area. So, um, I, I just felt like I needed to make a difference, and expressing myself through the written word just seemed like a natural next step. Fiction, because I love storytelling. Um, it's so much more authentic, I think, um, and putting paper, putting facts on paper, I was just ready to flex the other side of my brain, the creative side. So five years ago, I retired from my medical practice in order to follow my passion to travel, community service in the area of social justice,
1: especially as it relates to kids, and of course, writing. And what made you want to write this particular novel? Why set it in the Appalachians in 1917 specifically?
0: Uh, I was raised in the South. I'm a Southern girl. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. South has a rich history, and I know people both black and white that love the South, but we all know that there are dark parts, very, very dark parts of the Southern heritage. I think it takes someone who was raised in the South, whose lineage was Southern, with all the tales that passed down from a family of Southerners to be able to adequately spin a story of truth about this place. So that's what I wanted to write, the story of truth. Unfortunately, the truth of the past is in many ways also the truth of today. But why Southern Appalachia in 1917? Uh, Because the place of the story is its basis, especially in Southern writing and, and Southern Gothic as this is. And the Southern Appalachians embody the soul of the South better than any other area. And I'll use my cheat sheet here to list these states. So the Southern Appalachians are comprised of uh, parts of the states of Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama. So that's a very large part of the South. And you may have noticed that in the novel, there is no states specified as the location, and the town of Jamesville is completely fictional. So the novel could be read as being almost anywhere in the South, including in my home state of Arkansas, though we're not in Appalachians, and it could still ring true to the Southern
1: reader. I did notice that uh, Jamesville was not mentioned as being a particular state, uh, and I thought I was just forgetting (laughs) that, but (laughs) I'm glad to know that it was deliberate.
0: Yes, it, it was deliberate. We have the the Ozarks here in Arkansas, and they're they're a fascinating place. And and a lot of my um, tales of uh, familial stories and such are from the Ozarks and and the areas through there, which are much like the Appalachians. Um, and of course, I did have to make uh, the statement whenever I began this, but who wants to read a story about the Ozarks? And then now, of course, the Netflix series The Ozark came on, and, and I had to, had to eat those words, but I, I'm still very happy I said it in Appalachians. And in 1917, um, because that was an area that we were in flux, it was during World War One, the Great War as it was known then, but the Civil War was still talked about in in all of those family tales. It was It was a time of transition for our country. So we passed the 14th Amendment, supposedly giving blacks full equal rights, full protections, yet very few of those rights had actually manifested themselves, especially in the South because of the Jim Crow laws, equal but separate. All that amounted to was forced segregation, loopholes after loopholes after loopholes. But also during this time, the KKK, they'd already been established, But if you look at the history of the Klan, this was a nadir for them. They were at a low point. They had, for some reason, quieted a bit. So at the 1917 point, they were again rising in activity. And by 1920, they were at their second peak of activity. The novel being set in 1917... was important because it was that time of shifting of our society our government and and the new laws had been placed after the civil war and reconstructions and then after that newer laws in the south anyway followed the intent of those being to negate the effect of the initial ones (laughs) and one last thing not related to that is that the spanish flu epidemic hit in 1918 uh the novel deals with a lot of medical issues and the Spanish flu would have taken over the story if I'd said it in 1918 or later. So 1917 it was.
1: Let's start with Jamesville itself. Uh, how would you describe Jamesville at the start of your novel as a town, but also in terms of the relationship between the races?
0: Well, Jamesville, is a, it, it, it's squarely in line with the history of South at the time. Jamesville had had a past of prosperity and magnificence, for the whites anyway, And then they'd experienced a downfall. The the railroad came in on the other side of the mountain in in a town called Parker, and it pretty much decimated their town. Uh, They were impoverished. But during this time, and I say this, there was a hint of relative parity between the races. Definitely never any parity has been achieved. But that was before the Jim Crow laws, and, and, the story was not, but they had gone through a time, that time of of, uh, of when it wasn't so divided between um, the races, and and also in this fictional Jamesville, that time of contentment was because of the progressive leadership of the Fairbanks family that had gone back for for generations. So, um, finally, during the time of the novel. We see Jamesville at its low point um, regarding social justice at the end, but but when it opens, it is at a time when it, it is coming out of its heyday and it is in disrepair. So we're seeing much. We're seeing uh, where there had been the most hope for um, racial um, racial healing, and this was again being taken away from them. Does that make sense?
1: It does. Uh, your main protagonist is Madeline Fairbanks, known as Maddie. Tell us about her background and how you envisioned her.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. She's only 46, but she was very wizened. and uh, she plays the, the trope of the sage. Her roots were not Southern. She came from a progressive family in Boston, one of significant social ranks. She ended up in the South because of her husband, who was the love of her life. But once she was there, she found she loved the area, the herbs, which were her craft. And and she loved the simple way of life. She seemed to have an intuitive understanding of the mindset of the people. So I envisioned her with a love of the South, yet with a worldview that a lifelong Southerner of that time anyway would not have had the opportunity to have developed.
1: And how does she spend most of her time? Well, She spends her time,
0: the novel opens after her husband is dead, and he's the last of the founding family of Jamesville, uh, this progressive family whose influence was waning. It was in line with this surge of the KKK and the loss of the rights of the African-Americans, but also with this came restrictions on women's rights and decreases in educational opportunities. So at the opening, um, Maddie is spending her time Being pretty much the main medical caretaker for this impoverished town, this um, area of Jamesville, the mountainside included in the valley, um, she leans very significantly toward the scientific aspect. There is a doctor that comes through town once or twice a year, and she assists him, but she's pretty much all the medical care that they have for most of the of the year. And she does that with the herbs that she has been taught. We can talk about that a little bit later, but the, the herbs she has, and, and healing ways that she has been taught from her grandmother and, and passed down from ancestors from that uh, be, before her. So, she was. She went about her day birthing babies and and setting bones and and uh, healing or, or treating anyway croup and pleurisy and such. Um, she, she was a hard worker. When I mean, she wasn't doing that, of course, she was on the mountainside gathering her herbs or in her, in her little log cabin um, putting tinctures together or using her mortar and pestles to to grind them down.
1: What about her personality makes her the perfect lead for this story?
0: Now, she's hard-headed, she's cocksure of herself most of the time, she has a wicked dry wit, excuse me, but she sees the best in the people, even to the point of naivety about the depth of the evil intent in, in the community leaders. So like every good protagonist, she's perfect for the role, with a few minor caveats, uh, her naivete about the goodness in all people is her downfall.
1: Well, she needs to have a few minor caveats. She can't be perfect. She
0: has <laughs> yes, yes, a few others, you probably know. Uh, Mo- Moonshine was one of her was one of her downfalls
1: for a bit there, too. So <laughs> I did notice that, yes. Uh, she has an assistant, as we find out right away, uh, Renetta Morgan. Tell us about Ren as an individual.
0: Oh, yeah, Ren is the counterpoint to Maddie. She's a young, beautiful black woman. Um, she, though she's exceptionally bright, she suffers no fools. Naivete is not a personality flaw for her. She's bitter. She's anger, and, and angry and with good reason. In the story, we know her mother's died and left her as the oldest be, to be the primary provider for the family outside of the father. Um, we also know that her bow had gone off to the war, apparently, of his own decision and left her likely to be an old maid. So her herbalistic work, and she was Maddie's apprentice, her herbalistic, Ren's herbalistic work, at least in the beginning of her art, was born of necessity rather than love of the craft, as, as Maddie's was. But she is multifaceted in that we see her loving deeply. And we also see she's got this need for thrill and excitement. She's deeply passionate between her veneer of grump. So that's Wren in a nutshell.
1: We get a sense from the beginning that her relationship with Maddie uh, is friendly, but it's also strained at times. What does Wren see that Maddie doesn't?
0: Oh, yeah. She uh, she and Maddie often butt heads because of, I think, the difference in life narratives. Brynn's lineage is one of inequity at its best, and, and lynchings and other malevol- malevolence at its worst. So she has a difficulty tolerating Maddie's hopefulness. But on the other side of that coin, their souls are very much alike. And they're drawn to each other like magnets. They teach each other lessons, and more importantly, they learn from each other.
1: Maddie's family lives nearby, although she has a log cabin to herself. She's particularly close to her granddaughter, Hannah, who is another point-of-view character as well as a second assistant in training. Tell us a bit about Hannah.
0: Yes, Hannah. Well, I first included an adolescent for the sheer pleasure of writing through a child's eyes, uh, through Eyes of Innocence, and to provide an alternative perspective, of course. But as the story developed, Tana became the receptacle for all the maternal lineage that uh, Maddie had been given. Tana also exhibits um, a true childlike love of good and hatred of evil. And this love and hate have nothing to do with race or gender. It's love and hate that's parsed out according to who proves themselves to be deserving of it. And that's rather refreshing, because I think as adults we don't tend to do that. And, of course, a pediatrician would have to have a child's voice in her novel.
1: Through Maddie's view of Hannah as her potential successor, we begin to get a sense of the family's healing tradition, uh, which is contained in a box passed from one generation to the next. What's in the box that makes it so important?
0: Yes, there is a box, a box of papers and drawings, and and, a Norwegian Sparta book an old um, book of spells, actually. And this this box, the, the contents of it does hint at a mystical heritage. Uh, you know, you've got to have a hint of magical realism to make a good Southern Gothic. But um, Maddie teaches Hannah herbal healing and medicine-making from recipes in the box. But by doing that and letting her rifle through this, this box, and see all the papers she also learns of their foremothers ancestors going back for centuries Uh, some of them burned at stakes for being witches and such so Hannah represents the passing of the torch so to speak of this lineage of women that have gone back for centuries
1: into this world struts Carl Howard he appears in chapter one and we know from the moment he dismounts from his beloved horse Zephyr that he's not everything he claims to be so who does he say he is
0: Yes, he does. He does uh, uh, strut a bit. Uh, So I'll sum this up simply. He says he's the pastor sent to guide the people, but his actions, his strut, his way of being, say otherwise, don't they? That's about all we'll go into on that question, if that's okay. I don't want to give away the plot.
1: Of course not. Uh, So how would you describe his his character, his personality?
0: Okay. I describe Carl as a narcissist. He's misogynistic. He's very shallow. He's not stupid, though nothing on the genius level for sure, but he's not stupid. If he were smarter, he might even be described as Machiavellian, but he's not that smart. He's not a racist, though he preaches segregation as a means to his own ends. He's good at finding the fears of people and fanning that flame into hatred and then manipulating the people through their fears to gain power and control because he loves to bring control. He despises disloyalty or insubordination in any form. He has a weakness for women, but only women who adore him. And the good is that he absolutely loves his stallion Zephyr, he loves that animal. I don't know, perhaps it's because it's a representation of his own self-view, representing a superego of sorts. But he does have a, a huge love for his horse, the Zephyr.
1: In particular, what causes him to take an instant dislike to Maddie?
0: Um, well, I think it's because she didn't blindly follow him. You know, she's suspicious of him and she doesn't kowtow. She did give him many, many chances and she, to, she gave him the benefit of the doubt many times. But... In the story, she just continues on in her hard-headed, unwavering path of caring for the townspeople with her herbs and intermingling with the Blacks. Uh, When Carl calls her out and she does not bow, well, again, we don't want to spoil the plot. But he didn't like her insubordination, I believe.
1: And what is the effect of his appearance on the town? I'm talking about a general effect. Again, I don't expect you to spoil the plot. Just give us a sense sure, of sure, what happens sure. when he enters well, it. When,
0: when he comes in, they're at a low point. They're divided. and They're, they're looking for a savior. He seems like a good candidate. And once he installs himself in the savior position, they just follow him obediently for the most part. There were a few a few outliers, but for the most part, it, it was just... Just um, blind obedience.
1: Despite Carl's many flaws, Ren is initially attracted to him. How does that come about?
0: No, well, yes. Yes, she is because he is quite charismatic, mm-hmm. and, and he knows how to lay on the charm. Just like he knows how to seek out fear in a person, he, he knows how to find their loves. And in Ren's case, it's horses, and he plied her with that. So he was charismatic. He was charming. And and. He had the most wonderful horse that
1: he shared with her. One of his allies is Tom Price. Uh, What is he like, and why does he welcome Carl's leadership?
0: Yeah, Tom's not the brightest guy. Um, When the, I'm doing an air quote, new pastor comes to town, he doesn't think to doubt him. Uh, Carl doesn't do anything to rock, rock Tom's boat, so Tom, just like everyone else, blindly follows along. When Carl begins with the fear-mongering, Tom turns into a zealot. He thinks it's his idea all along. But perhaps that's just as Carl
1: had planned. Randall Evans is another important character. What can you tell us about him and his relationship with Maddie?
0: Yes, yeah. Well, Randall hails from the better days in Jamesville, from when Maddie's husband Samuel Fairbanks was alive and leading the town progressively. Randall and Maddie are, at the beginning of the novel, both widowed. But previously, the two couples had been like-minded friends. They clung to each other and to Ren's parents, Daniel and Kareem Morgan, as well, as basically oases of open-mindedness in a desert of narrow-mindedness. So it follows that Randall and Maddie and Daniel continue to lean on one another.
1: Before we close, have I left anything out that you would like listeners to hear about? Other characters, plot points, settings?
0: Well, Yes, I think the, the storm, the winter storm, it was a blizzard actually, it plays a huge role. It's deadly, it, it separates the people from one another. And, and during this blizzard, many truths come to light. I think in this case, the weather is a character in and of itself. Paraphrasing in the, a line in the novel, it whitewashes malevolence, paints ugliness as purity, distorts reality. One must either be lost in it or find one's way. So it truly is a, a it truly forces a reckoning for
1: these people. So, did you need to research this novel, and if so, how did you go about it?
0: Oh yes. Um, when I grew up, as I said in the south, so a lot of it was was just innate to me, the ways of being. But of course, as you get into any historical thing, you have to make sure you get your facts right, and then you realize that things that you don't know, uh, you chase rabbit holes. You don't you don't know about this, and you don't know about this. So so, yes, most of this was done during the pandemic, so unfortunately, it was done mostly online. But I enjoyed I enjoyed uh, learning making sure I had all of my history as far as the, the amendments and the laws uh, correct and, and placed in the correct times. That was a, a learning curve in, in and of itself. And then um, the time period, the, the sodas that they drank, the clothes that they wore in the small rural south versus back in Boston, where Mady came from. They already had uh, electricity in Boston, and here down in the south, they they did not. They lived by by uh, lantern light. So there was a lot of differences in that time. And and as I was saying, we were a country that was in transit, and we were very divided as as to what we had in different areas. So uh, there's there's no end to every every small thing that I did need to research. And as I said, unfortunately, I had to do most of it um, online because we were during, during the pandemic. But I have just recently traveled up through the Appalachians and, and uh, stopped at a lot of the sites, and, and, and that was a very pleasurable thing. I I told my husband as we were driving that it would have been a really nice thing if I could have known these sorts of things before I actually wrote the novel about the place. But, but yes, I think in, in a pinch, the the... Um, the internet worked well for historical research.
1: I'm assuming there's quite a lot of information available. Uh, how do you decide? Do you actually read first or do you wait and see where you have a question and then go look for the answer?
0: You know, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, you have to have, you, you decide your skeleton, or I do. I decide the skeleton of. of the scene or or the whole story however you want to do it and and you go and you start and you could get lost reading and know about it forever and I think that's a good thing so you know you know your back back backstory you know so much more than what you put into the book and then as you go along I find that I come across things I had no idea about I enjoyed learning about the linotype uh, which was in in Randall's newspaper. He had to have a, a linotype machine, and, and so I had to go stop what I was doing and research that, which took a day or so. Uh, so I think it's a little bit of
1: both. What would you like people to take away from Winter's Reckoning?
0: Well, you know, I was thrilled with the Kirkus Review summary line, and, and I'll read it, because I think this is a good takeaway with a few uh, again, caveats. But it said, a notable tale that offers the hope that even small actions can lead toward greater good. And you know, Winter's Reckoning is a novel, just a story. It's fiction, though it's historical fiction. It's not meant to preach or coerce. It is meant to remind us where we've been, and finally, hopefully, to make us cognizant of where we're going. That will be my my takeaway. I would hope.
1: This book has just come out. Are you already working on something new? Yes, um, it actually comes out uh, August the
0: ninth, and uh, this book is the backstory to an original book that I started. Uh, so I have the, the skeleton to the sequel for this. But as I tend to do during my historical research and stuff such, I have also fallen in love with the backstory to Winter's Reckoning. So I have started a prequel which includes four the number four of the four mothers that came through in this box. So it goes all the way back to 1550 in, in Norway. There were witch trials in, 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 Nor- in uh, Bergen, Bergen, Norway in 1550. I didn't know that. And I had been there and actually seen the platforms and such. Um, so I've gotten 25% of that book done. We'll go through the mothers in, in Norway and in Prague and in France and then back in New England, which will be another, another witch trial. And then, of course, into Winter's Reckoning. But at the end will be a contemporary. It will be a contemporary story that I will tell you um, is medically based with a little what if. And I'm fascinated with the maternal lineage of mitochondrial inheritance. The mitochondria are tiny little organelles in the cell that have some DNA in them. And it's so fascinating because that's the only DNA that's passed other than what's the real DNA in our nucleus. And it's passed from mother to children, from mother to children. So that means that you pass it to both of your uh, mothers, pass it to boys and girls both, but only the girls pass their mother's mitochondria on because the boys' children will have their mother's mitochondria. So that's a pure lineage. So in the end, we have a, a, a pathologist who uh, makes a, a startling um, discovery. It's fictional about mitochondrial inheritance. And takes us all the way back from Norway through to where she is. She's in their line as well. So I've got both of those going.
1: That sounds like a lot of work and a lot of fun, uh, prequel and a sequel.
0: Well, it's, it, it's exciting. That way you get to you know, pull them all together.
1: Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Adele. It's been a pleasure talking with you.
0: Thank you so much, I enjoyed it.
1: And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Adele Holmes about Winter's Reckoning. Find out more about her at adeleholmes.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Network. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at com where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.